And we are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day. We're looking in John chapter 11. We have just most recently seen the raising of Lazarus from the dead and that exhibition of Jesus's unusual power. And we have seen how that is serving the purpose of teaching us that Jesus has all life and power in himself, that he is able to raise those who are spiritually dead in sins and trespasses, and he is able to raise his people on the last day. This was the seventh of the seven miracles in John's gospel, and it is the greatest of the miracles because it exhibits for us a savior who can do everything, even stand as a conqueror at the face of death itself and overthrow that last great enemy. What glorious news John has set out for us. And we are picking up where we left off in John chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 45, and we're going to read down into chapter 12, verse 11. John 11, 45 to 12, 11. And as usual, I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. Now, in response to the news that Jesus has raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, John tells us, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no long, longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those who was reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you have with you, always, you, have with you but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, 
whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because of account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, when I was in seminary, I had a professor who taught our homiletics, our preaching courses, and he would say, when you preach to people, no matter what setting you're preaching in, you want to preach in a discriminating way. And when he went on to explain what he meant by that, he said, you're always going to have different people at different stages of spiritual growth or life, converted people, unconverted people. You're always going to have this diversity of people and diversity of spiritual conditions in front of you. And that became glaringly true to me as I, for 10 years, pastored a church in which perhaps on one Sunday I would look out and see somebody sighing and checking their watch, trying to figure out when I was going to be done, while somebody else was over there eager, shaking their head, wanting me to keep preaching. So be on your best behavior. I didn't say that for that. But it is true in any setting, there are always a diversity of responses and spiritual conditions, and nothing brings those responses out so much as the preaching of Jesus Christ. Um, I think I mentioned earlier in this, se- in this series that Sinclair Ferguson once said, um, Jesus brings out the worst in people. Jesus also produces the best in his people. And we see that so clearly, don't we, in the response that John gives us, the various responses to the news that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, before I say anything else, on a prima facie reading of the raising of Lazarus, you would think everyone would believe. There is nothing bigger than Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead than Jesus raising himself from the dead. And this is the greatest of the miracles Jesus did before his own resurrection, and yet it is what elicited in the hearts of the chief chief priests and the Pharisees a desire to kill Jesus and Lazarus. There's something almost comical in this section. I don't know if you've ever read through John 11 and 12 and you thought, how foolish the blindness of unbelievers that Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. And we're going to see at the end of this passage that they plot together how to put Lazarus to death. Do they not know that Jesus would just raise him from the dead again if he wanted to? The foolishness and the blindness, and yet by way of contrast with their malice and their cruelty and their hatred for Christ— one of the greatest pictures of the devotion and the commitment of those who love the Lord Jesus and the exhibition of their love to him, this stark contrast in the responses. You know, um, while the Bible certainly warns against the great evil of lukewarmness, um, there is a sense in which Christ really yields extreme reactions. They either want to kill him or they want to find ways they can show their utmost love to him. So actually, it's, it's a marvelous picture, a diversity of people. And I, I want us to consider this morning as we look at these responses, these, these contrasting responses to the Lord Jesus, I want us to consider first um, one group of people is the cruel, and then I want us to consider the committed And then I want us to consider the counterfeit, the cruel, the committed, 
and the counterfeit. We'll notice no sooner are we told that Jesus has raised Lazarus that many of the Jews who had come with Mary and seen what he did believed in him. And the purpose of the miracle, and let me just emphasize this, at this point, the purpose of the miracle was not to wow people. It was so that people would believe in Jesus. All the signs, remember that first sign, the changing of the water to wine, John says at the end of it, and his disciples saw his glory and they believed in him. That was, that's the end goal. Now, Jesus only did select miracles. Um, and, and as we know, and as we're going to see here, the miracle itself was not enough to make people believe. Uh, you'll remember Jesus's parable of the rich man and another Lazarus. And remember, they both die, and the beggar Lazarus is carried to heaven, and the rich man goes to hell. And he wants Abraham to send somebody back to his brothers so that they wouldn't come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, no, even if one rises from the dead, they will not believe. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And, and we see that the miracle was not sufficient. Here, in fact, the miracle riled up the hatred of the chief priests and Pharisees. Notice some of the people believed, but then some went back to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They sort of tattletale on the Savior to the religious leaders. Look what he's doing. And the leaders, instead of saying, maybe this is the Messiah, Maybe this is the one that Moses and the prophets talked about. Maybe this is the long-awaited seed of the woman. Instead of doing that, notice they garner the council. They have a presbytery meeting. And they say, what are we going to do? This man performs many signs. They realize he had performed this. There was no question. You know, today, sometimes atheists and agnostics and unbelieving skeptical intellectuals will talk about whether these things really happen or not. There was no question whether the miracles of Jesus happened or not. They knew what he did. But notice, this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, that's kind of comical, as if Jesus was under their power. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, the religious leaders in Israel were marked by numerous sins. Jesus will tell us in Luke's gospel at one point, through Luke, the Lord will tell us that the Pharisees were lovers of money. Here we see that they were lovers of power. What, what was it that kept them from believing in Christ? What was it that kept them from turning to him in repentance and faith, and what was it that riled up in them so much malice is their love for power and control. They even think they have that authority over him, over everyone. Um, you know, we live in a day when um, the, the lust for power is so prominent in every corner. Um, we hear people talking about which group is in power and how they shouldn't be in power and power should be distributed. And, and let me just say this morning, that is a deeply rooted evil. And so much more so when it comes into the church. Remember, this is the church of the living God. And these are so, supposed to be the shepherds of the people of God. 
and yet they are in it for their own power, their own might, and so everything they do is driven by a desire to control. There's a word there for all of us, whether it's in a local church, whether it's in denominations. Um, I had a friend who said to me many, many years ago, he said, Nick, politics in denominations is sadly inevitable, but woe to us if we ever fall in love with politics. It's a good word. In a local church, how many local churches were ripped apart by people who wanted their way, who wanted to insist on what they wanted, rather than caring about others and caring about the needs of others? Well, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests are all gathered together in this council, and they're plotting and they're scheming. And then notice verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now notice, here is the one who is standing in the very place God had appointed and put Aaron into in the days of Moses and Aaron. This is the high priest. This is the one who is supposed to be making atonement for the people on the Day of Atonement. This is the one who gets to go into the most holy place and bring the blood of the sacrifice on behalf of the people to represent the people before God. And from that one comes the idea, let's kill Jesus and save our power and our people. Um, We see here the length people will go to when they hate Christ. You know, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't help anyone to have a view of the world or of those who are unregenerate as if they're just harmless and they just need to be brought along. You see, there is, there is raging depravity, even in the heart of the most religious person in Israel in the day of Christ. Think of that. This is the highest religious office in Israel. And from the heart of that man comes the depraved idea, let's kill him and save our people. Now notice John does parenthetically say in verse 51, he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is almost comical. Here comes the most malicious, cruel, hateful response to Christ. Let's just get rid of him for the sake of the people. And John says that while he is uttering those words, God, the infinite God, is sovereign over them and turns them into a prophetic utterance of the gospel. It is better for one to die than for you to perish. It is true. What he's saying is true when it's understood in the spiritual sense. It is better for Christ to die than for you to perish. Isn't that marvelous? Our God can take the greatest, most cruel and hateful scheming of those who rage against Jesus and the church and turn it into something useful for the souls of his people. Now, um, you know, the, 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 I want to say this. When, when the Pharisees and the chief priests, they, they form this council at which uh, Caiaphas says this, they, they are sort of self-unaware. They're not, they're not coming together knowing exactly what they're going to do. They, 
they sort of act like they're doing this for the public good. John Calvin says this. He says they double their wickedness by a plausible disguise, their zeal for the public good. Isn't that interesting? That, that in the name of good for the people, they would show so, so much hatred to Christ. Calvin says the fear that chiefly distressed them was that their own tyranny should be destroyed, but they pretend to be anxious about the temple and the worship of God. Isn't that interesting? Um, there's a word there for us as we consider our own reaction to Christ and our own response to him. Now, notice that John moves us on into the season of the Passover, and from this point on, this is the end of the ministry of Christ. This is going to culminate from here to the cross. This is with a very focused way from this chapter to the end of John's gospel. John is going to focus in on all those things leading up to the death of Christ on the cross and to his resurrection. And so it's fitting that it's at the Passover, and notice Jesus has come now to Bethany, and he's come into the home of Simon the leper. We know that from Matthew 26. And he is there with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Now, as we kind of survey what's going on here, we're going to see a very stark contrast to the religious leaders in Israel. And you're going to see it in three ways here, um, three examples of those who are committed to Christ. Notice we're first told that in verse 2 they gave a dinner for him. Martha served. Now, we know Martha liked to serve. We know that Martha got anxious in serving from Luke's gospel. And yet this is set out as an admirable thing, hospitality to the Savior, hospitality to the people of God. That is... That's not an unimportant thing. It's actually a mark of commitment to Christ. Um, you know, we, we sometimes downplay the importance of hospitality. It is vitally important to the life of the church and the spread of the gospel and the ministry of the church. And it's a, an example of commitment and uh, reciprocal love to the Savior. Martha is grateful for Christ's love for her, She's grateful for what he's done for her family in raising Lazarus from the dead. And she wants to show that gratitude, and she does so by making a simple meal for the Savior. Um, there's something beautiful about that. The church in recent years has needed to reclaim that grace of hospitality. That is such a sweet and beautiful gift. And Mary is set out as one who is committed to the Savior in that simple act of serving. And then at this dinner, we see the commitment of another disciple. We see Lazarus. Now, all we're told is that he was reclining with Christ at the table. Here, Lazarus is showing his gratitude to Christ and his commitment to Christ by, by his nearness to Christ. He wants to be as near to the Savior as possible. In fact, I almost wonder if the Apostle John, who is going to lean back on Jesus' breast at the end of this gospel, who's going to feel so much affection for the Savior of the world that he wants to be as close to him as he can possibly be as his disciple, if John didn't learn that from watching Lazarus. Isn't that interesting? The two occasions. Here's the one that Christ has raised from the dead. What can I show the Savior? What can I bring to the Savior? And Lazarus doesn't bring anything. He brings himself. Isn't that interesting? Lazarus isn't serving. Lazarus isn't going to anoint Jesus with a very costly offering like Mary is going to do. But Lazarus brings himself to the Savior. 
um, you know, we sometimes mistakenly think that the Christian life is best lived in busyness and service. And sometimes the Christian life is best lived in just sweet, devotional nearness to Christ. Um, we learn that from Lazarus's sister, don't we, who in Luke 10 is just there sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. Here we learn it from Lazarus. He is leaning on the breast of Jesus. I was, I was thinking about the commitment exemplified by these siblings in this chapter this week in preparation, and I thought about that hymn, and I love it so much, More Love to Thee, O Christ, More Love to Thee. That, that ought to be the cry of our hearts. Lord, I want to love you more than I do. I want my heart to be burning with affection for you. That's not, that's not hokey evangelical schmarmy. That's, shmarmy is a word, you can look it up, it's in a dictionary. But that's not, that's not just mushy evangelical emotionalism. But, but as Christians, we are called to long for nearness with the Savior. By the way, I believe this is why the book of Song of Solomon is in the Bible. I, I wholeheartedly believe it's a picture of Christ and the church ultimately, and that it's meant to stir up in us burning desires to worship the Savior to love him more and to draw closer to him. All of our Reformed heritage felt that way. You know, the better part of sermons in church history in the Reformed tradition preached on Lord's Supper Sundays or communion sermons were sermons on the Song of Solomon. The table is meant to stir up in us a desire to be nearer to Christ. More love to thee, O Christ. Nearer my God to thee. Lazarus is exemplifying for us what it looks like to be committed to Jesus as he reclines with the Savior at the table. And then there is, of course, the most um, standout example, and that is Mary taking a pound of that very expensive, fragrant ointment and anointing the feet of Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair with that ointment. Now, for us to understand the extravagance of Mary's actions and the display of her commitment, we have to understand that if we could matriculate the cost of that oil in those days to our days, it would be somewhere between $3,500 to $5,000. Now, that may not seem like a lot to us. Um, that was almost an entire year's wages in their day. And so Mary is bringing the best of what she has to give to Jesus out of love for him. Um, we were talking as a session this week about giving, and, and our congregation has been very generous in giving, and one of the elders made the point that um, in, in his time in this church, there were rarely occasions where giving was preached on. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about giving, and this is not a sermon on giving, but what I will say this morning is that extravagant, generous, grateful giving— flows out of the heart of one who knows what Christ has done for him or her and who wants to respond not in mere duty but out of love and commitment for the Savior. We only are ever going to give generously 
when we love Christ so much for his great dying love for us. Something has happened in the soul of Mary. Something that, that you get the sense that what she's doing is spontaneous. It's, it doesn't seem planned out. It doesn't seem like Mary looked around and thought, well, if I get rid of that, will I be able to make it with this? And it doesn't look like she schemed. It looks like she's just thinking, what is the best thing I can bring? I want to give the Savior whatever I can give him. Um, I want that to be more true from my heart and in my life. And... If you're a believer, I hope you want that to be true as well. That is, that is such a glorious grace. You know, that, that doesn't mean that you have to have a lot of money to give a lot. I was reminded of the example of the widow with the two mites. And Jesus watched her and pointed her out and said to his disciples, See, they all put in out of their abundance, but she put in everything that she had. And... She gets her name recorded in scripture, and as my best friend has often said to me, think how many trillions of dollars have been given in church history because of the widow putting in all that she had. Here Mary is doing the same thing. She is exemplifying for us what it means to give back to the Savior out of love for the Savior and to so show commitment. Now, how different, how different this is, the stark contrast, the malice and the cruelty of the religious leaders the extravagant love of Mary. You could not find two more extreme examples. Now, I want to note something. John does something very interesting here, and I don't want us to miss it. Um, Notice the latter part of verse 3, chapter 12, verse 3. Notice this. She does this. She wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, and John says the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, why does John say that? Well, you could just say that's just an incidental historical detail, or you could understand that John loves double entendres. John is always saying one thing, but he has a spiritual meaning behind it. The house really was truly filled with the fragrance of the perfume, that Mary had anointed on Jesus' feet, but I think what we're supposed to take away from that is that, that Mary's love for Christ and the reciprocal relationship between the Savior and his people causes an aroma of Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that we are the aroma of Christ to those who believe. To some were the aroma of life to life, to others were the aroma of death to death. And that as believers show their commitment to the Lord Jesus, it is as if the fragrance of Christ emanates and fills everything. As you and I show real heartfelt devotion to Christ in any of the ways that that manifests itself, whether it be Martha's hospitality, whether it be Lazarus's, uh, desire to be near to the Savior, or whether, whether it be generosity and giving back to the work of the kingdom of God and for Christ, that, that causes a fragrance of Christ. And here's why. Because only the Lord Jesus can produce that in a real and true way in the hearts of his people. That can't be manufactured. It can't be programmatized. It can't be, it can't be made up. It can't be forced It's not going to happen by desire to legally serve in the church. But when the Holy Spirit really and truly works in the hearts of God's people, 
to show them who Christ is and what he's done, and they respond in these ways, it's as if the aroma of Christ permeates everywhere they go. Isn't that beautiful? Um, we have seen the cruel, we have seen the committed, and then very briefly and finally we're going to see the counterfeit. Well, there's another aroma in the room, and it is the aroma of hell. It is not the aroma of Christ. Notice, no sooner has Mary uh, given Jesus this extravagant gift that we, we, we sense this odor of death. Notice Judas says in verse 5, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, a couple things. This is the first time we have heard one word out of the mouth of Judas. This is the first time we have heard one utterance from Judas, and it's going to tell us all we need to know about him. So, um, first of all, John is going to tag him, Judas, the one who is about to betray him. And I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but every time Judas is mentioned in the gospel records, he has tagged Judas, the one who would betray the Lord, he who would betray the Lord. And yet, by way of contrast, and I thought this was very interesting, Peter is never called, parenthetically, Peter, the one who denied him. You see, Judas is being set out as a counterfeit, and Judas is being set out as an example of one who can very skillfully hide what's actually in his heart. And John is going to start to reveal that for us. Now, it's interesting, um, Judas is going to feign care for the poor. Um, we live in a day when if a politician wants to get you to vote for him or her, he just feigns care for the poor. Uh, Judas knew all about that. He knew that would be effective. He didn't care for the poor. He had no desire in caring for the poor. He was the one who had the money box, and he was a thief. And he hated the idea that Mary would waste anything on the Savior, because that could have been for him. A couple of things here this morning. First of all, uh, an old Puritan said, Jesus cares so little for money that he gave the money box to his enemy. So don't miss that. He cares so little about money, he let Judas keep the money box. Um, uh, another theologian put it this way, God is not interested in what you think about other people's use of money, because Judas was real concerned about what Mary was doing with her money, but this individual says he is very interested in yours. So that's a good word for us this morning. He doesn't care what you think about other people's use of money. He cares about yours. And notice, um, notice that Judas feigns care for the poor. And John very quickly tells us he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge in the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Now, Judas's love of money is what's going to drive his betrayal of Christ, isn't it? He's going to betray the Savior for a mere 30 pieces of silver because he loved money so much. And, and let me say this this morning. When the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, the love of money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, we ought to give very serious heed to that. Christ loves rich people, 
Jesus loves poor people. Jesus died for rich people. Jesus died for poor people, but Jesus often, many times, warned against the danger of loving money. And we see that so well, don't we, exemplified in the life of Judas. Now, Judas is frightening, isn't he? Because here is one who heard, as I believe Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin said, Judas heard all of Christ's sermons. He got all of the special instruction. He was an apostle. He was chosen by Christ. He was with the Savior. He saw him. He heard him. He, he spent three long years with him. He went out when Jesus commissioned the, the 12 to go out, and then when he sent the 72 out, he went out with them. He came back with them. He was one that came back to Jesus and said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He cast out demons. And yet, he himself is, as it were, going to be possessed by Satan. Um, it's a frightening thought. He, he had all the privileges, and yet his heart was as black as hell itself. Um, there's a warning for us. Uh, we are all called to, to ask ourselves, in my response to Christ, do I look like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, or do I just try to play the part? Um, now, one of the beautiful things here is that Jesus comes to the defense of Mary. Notice he says in verse 7, leave her alone. She Literally, she has kept it for the day of my burial. Now, Mary probably didn't know all that she was doing, but Jesus tells, her, tells us that she had essentially pre-anointed him for what he had come to do. And what Jesus is doing when he draws it back and he says, look, you always have the poor. There's always going to be opportunities for you to care about the poor. But me, you do not always have. He is drawing attention to himself. And he's saying, Mary has understood that I am the centerpiece. The center of the Christian faith. The centerpiece of our Christian focus has got to be the Lord Jesus Christ crucified and risen. I've always thought we're going to come to the table this morning, and if you want to know the essence of Christianity, you look at the table, the broken body and the shed blood. God, have, God has essentially wiped everything else out of your view when you come to the table, and he says, this is what's central. Jesus says, she has anointed me for my burial. The poor you have always, me you do not always have. What I came to do is most central, and Mary understands that. Um, I want to read to you the words of um, Andrew Bonar as we prepare to come to the table this morning. Here's Jesus at this, at this feast, and, and it would have been just an ordinary feast. It would have just been like any other dinner, any other get-together of relatives and friends. But Jesus transforms that entire setting with his presence. Listen to this. Andrew Bonar says, Apart from Christ, the feast is but a common meal. He says, it is his presence which sanctifies it and turns it into something special, sacramental. When he comes in and he dines with us, the room, the table, the food, the company undergo a transformation. That's amazing. Everything 
about the setting changes. The aroma of Christ fills the place. He transforms it. Everything, including the company, undergoes a transfiguration. Listen to this. Bernard says, Connection with Jesus dignifies and ennobles and consecrates all of those things. Without him, everything is common. With him, everything becomes sacred and lofty. As his touch healed, so his presence elevates and glorifies. That's amazing. We come to this table this morning in a minute. Each one of you is going to respond to Christ in one way or another. Either you're going to respond in indifference or you're going to respond in enmity or you're going to respond with a greater desire to commit yourself to him, to be near him, to serve him, to show your love to him by generosity and extravagant giving to him in the work of his kingdom. Or like Judas, you're just going to play the part. Um, I don't know what's in your heart. You don't know what's in mine. But I do want to exhort us this morning, as we hear these things, as we prepare to come to the table, may God give you and me a true inner longing to respond not in cruelty or as a counterfeit, but in deep, heartfelt commitment to the one who has loved us and who has given himself for us, that we would serve him and long to be near him and long to give ourselves and what we have to him. Let him who has ears to hear let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us as we prepare to come to the table. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for this cameo. We thank you that you have given us both these examples of those who hated the Savior and examples of those who loved the one who had loved them and given himself for them. And so, Lord Jesus, would you stir up in us a deeper love for you this morning? We pray with uh, the words of that hymn, more love to thee, O Christ. We pray that you would give us a greater love for you, that our lives would show that we are truly and really committed to you. And so, Father in heaven, would you do that for us? Even now, as we prepare to come to the table, we pray that you would sanctify what we do, that you would fill this place with the aroma of Christ this morning, and that we would leave this place built up and edified and longing to be nearer to the Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.